Good morning. Welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Appreciate you being here at our second Sunday in this location. Uh, our church was started a little under nine years ago when we originally met on the campus at the University of Florida. Then we met downtown at the Hippodrome State Theater, which was a really, really cool space, but really, really small for what we were trying to do. And then for some reason, uh, they did not want to give up their main theater to us because it was like they were a theater or something. Um, and then we moved over off 8th Avenue, and then just last week was our first service here, so we're glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, parents, if you want to go ahead and release your kids over here uh, to our volunteers, uh, it's up to you, but uh, we have something for them this morning for their class, so kids, you can head on over uh, with your teachers, and we'll dismiss you guys this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. That is where we're going to be this morning. Um, if you do not have a scripture journal and you would want one, just raise your hand. That's our free gift to you. Uh, we love the word of God here at Aletheia Church and want you to be able to have that in your hands to be able to take notes. We would just ask that you would bring those back with you each week um, as God might be speaking to you uh, through his word. Uh, we study books of the Bible kind of verse by verse, line by line here, because we believe that is how God still is speaking to us today is predominantly through the reading, preaching, and teaching of the Word of God. And so we want you to have that. That's our free gift to you. And so um, over the last several weeks, we actually have not been in 1 Corinthians. We took a break throughout the month of December to study some uh, common uh, Christmas carols or Christmas hymns together to kind of prepare ourselves during Advent to celebrate Christmas and the coming of Christ. Uh, but now we are back in the book of 1 Corinthians together. And so um, if this is your first Sunday with us, or if you are like me and you have a short-term memory loss and you're struggling to remember kind of what we had talked about as we were working through 1 Corinthians together, let me just give you a brief recap of what we've seen in Paul's epistle up until this point, so that when we dive into our text this morning, we'll have the context for what Paul has been talking about so that it doesn't just seem like, oh, well, Kevin just kind of took this passage out of context and used it to talk about whatever he wants. No, there's, there's a theme and there is a structure and a rhythm to what the Apostle Paul was saying to this church in Corinth. And, and if you know anything about this church, Paul deeply cared about this church. This was a church that he had planted and started himself. It was one of the cities that he had stayed in the longest. Uh, he had spent somewhere between 18 months to two years at this location. And that was very rare for Paul, if you've read uh, the book of Acts at all. And so as Paul is writing this church, the easiest way to kind of describe the culture of this church and what was going on there during this time is they were a hot mess. There, there was a lot of problems going on there. The biggest ones being is that, that once Paul had left and had established leadership for this church there, what had happened was, is the leadership began to fight amongst themselves. And once the leadership began fighting amongst themselves, therefore the rest of the congregation and the people inside of the church started fighting amongst themselves. And so what we saw very, very early on and kind of this, this big theme that Paul wants this church to understand as he's writing to them is, hey, look, when I first came to you, you guys had no idea who God was who the creator of the universe was, and what his son, Jesus Christ, has done for you. You, you, you were not aware of any of the, those things. 
And after we had spent time with you, after I had preached the gospel to you, after we had discipled you, after we had shared meals together, after we had served our city together, all these things we've done, right? You guys now should have this robust understanding of what God has done for you. And because of that, you should be living your lives transformed by the power of what Christ has done for you. That you should live differently than you used to live. And what was happening was as once Paul had left, they were kind of running back to all these things that they had done before. Primarily, they were fighting and creating disunity over various uh, ideas, leadership, and, and sects inside of the church. So we spent the first couple of weeks looking at how disunity and fighting over celebrity leadership was foolishness, according to Paul. Paul's like, look, you are not gathering under the name of Paul. You are not gathering under the name of Apollos. You are not gathering under the name of Peter or James or John. All of those men are simply mouthpieces or instruments for Jesus Christ. That you are gathered because of Jesus. And that should be a unifying truth for you as a church, not one to create disunity. He then called them in that faithfulness to say, I want you to remain faithful to Jesus over everything else. That includes sexual ethics, that includes marriage, that includes singleness, that no matter what you may be walking through in your life, fidelity and faithfulness to Jesus is the hallmark trait of a follower of Christ. And that this, this is not some duty-bound uh, religious zeal that's driving Paul. No, it's a reality of who they are from an identity perspective that because they are adopted and loved as sons and daughters of the king of the universe, they can live this way with one another, overcoming preferences, overcoming idols, overcoming disagreements, all for the sake of Jesus and serving him. So this was not, this letter is not a, a letter written with a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's not a letter written to the Corinthians to place them under a yoke of performance or obedience, but it is a reminder to the Corinthians and to us as disciples of Jesus that we can pursue unity, holiness, and joy in Christ together for the glory of God. And so last time we were in 1 Corinthians, Pastor Theo did a great job of taking us through chapter 8. And I would encourage you to, to hop on our YouTube page and go back and listen to that sermon if you haven't had a chance to listen to it or not, because Pastor Theo did a really good job breaking down the specific issue that was going on inside of Corinth at that time. Uh, but let me just kind of give you just a brief overview of what he talked about so that we know then the springboard into chapter 9 this morning. So let me read these first three verses of chapter 8 for you. He says, Now, concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge, and this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So 
Paul was addressing a very specific issue that this church was wrestling with. If you know anything about Corinth, they had a ton of idols there. And what they would do is they would sacrifice meat inside of those temples to worship those various idols. And then once the sacrifice was over, they would take that meat into the market and sell it. And there was this belief amongst the Jews and subsequently the early Jewish Christians that lived in Corinth and maybe even some of the Gentile Christians as well. Hey, we should not eat that meat because it was sacrificed to idols and it might in some way have us participating in idol worship. And we want to worship the God of heaven, the God of earth. And so we shouldn't participate in that particular meal together. It's just something that Christians shouldn't do. We should reject that part of the culture of the city of Corinth. And what Paul is saying here is that there were some inside of the church, and if you notice in your, in your Bible, there's quotations around these certain sections. That, that's something that the translators have put in there because they kind of believe that Paul is making maybe even almost a cynical remark about what he's talking about here. He's saying, hey, some of you guys know that there are no such things as other gods, that we don't need to worry about that. There's only one God, creator of heaven and earth, and there are no such things as other gods. And there, other gods. And therefore, because there is no such thing as other gods, to eat this food is not to worship other gods because there's no such thing. And, and that is a foundational truth that Paul would agree with. He's like, hey, the people that are teaching you this, they're not wrong. But what he's saying here is that this knowledge that they have Instead of being as a used as an opportunity to teach and preach and address the freedom that we have in Christ, and instead has led these leaders, these men and women inside this church, to be puffed up with pride and to tear down and make fun of those that wouldn't eat the meat. It's basically what's happened. And what he says there, he says, but love builds up. It doesn't puff up. So he's saying, hey, you know what? You have the right information and the totally wrong application of that information. That just because you have the truth doesn't mean you've applied that truth in a way that reveals the majesty and the glories of Jesus and what he's done for us. And it's causing you to create divisions and hate on people in your church family who don't feel comfortable eating that meat. And what was happening is more and more factions were creating in this church, more and more fights were happening in this church, and the world outside of the church were looking at these believers in Corinth and said, well, they claim to have the love of God in them, they claim to love the city, they claim to love one another, but I don't see any difference between them and those that worship Apollos or Zeus or Artemis or what the various other gods that were worshipped in Corinth. And what was supposed to be a beautiful opportunity to witness to the city around them of the beauty of what Jesus had done for them had become another opportunity for the world to mock Jesus because of the way these men and women were living their lives. And so as Paul processed through the truth about what was going on in this specific issue, he wraps it up in verse 13. And look at what he says in verse 13 of chapter 8. He says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. He is so committed to unity 
with his fellow brothers and sisters inside the body of Christ, he'll become a vegetarian. Now, I don't know, some of you guys are probably like vegan in here and vegetarians. We live in Gainesville and it's a very diverse city. And so, you know, I, I like for those of you guys that come to my gospel community group, my wife's like really sensitive to that type of stuff and making sure like there are dietary restrictions. If I was in charge of the meal, hamburgers and bacon at every meal, like let's do it. And here we have, right, the Apostle Paul, a church planner, saying, I'll give up whatever needs to be given up to love my brother well and to make much of Jesus. And I think what we see Paul saying here at the beginning, at the end of chapter 8 and heading into chapter 9, is a very, very timely message for any of us in the room this morning that would claim to be a disciple and follower of Jesus this morning. That if we want to be the church, if we want to claim to have been bought with the, the, the blood of Christ and be covered in it, if we want to be disciples and followers of the King of the universe, and if we want to make much of Jesus and display the gospel and the good news to those around us, then the call on our lives of what we get to do is to lay down our rights and freedoms for the sake of Jesus and the good news. It doesn't mean these rights and freedoms don't exist. It doesn't mean that there's something intellectually or philosophically wrong with knowing that they exist. But that the call of those who follow Jesus is one of surrender and service, not fighting and disunity and truth-telling all the time. And guys, I'll be honest, this is, this is a tough concept. If any of you guys are familiar with the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram 8. So everything that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 9 is just like an assault on everything I believe to be true about human beings' characters. Right? Like my, my personality style is called the debater. There was a, a season in our life a couple years ago where people in our community group would stay afterwards and I would create debates just for fun of it. And I would take sides that I didn't even actually believe in. Just, just for the fun of argumentation and working through it. And then my wife would come in and she would have to tell these poor people that were debating against me, he doesn't believe the side he's arguing. Stop talking to him. He doesn't believe it. But if we're to take God's word seriously and truly believe that Jesus is who he said he was and what he's done for us is real and authentic and true, our lives must be shaped and formed by his example. And here's the deal. And some of you guys in this room, you can, you can shake your head with me, especially the internationals who are here with me this morning. I want you to look at your American brothers and sisters in here and be like, yeah, this is you. As Americans, we often treat freedom as the chief virtue of our culture. That, there, that is the most important thing that we have. And how does this play out? It, it, it plays out in the way that we believe we should be allowed to do whatever we want so long as we don't harm someone else. That's a classic American kind of like libertarian take of what it means to be human, right? I, I have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and as long as it doesn't infringe upon yours, I'm good to go. Don't tell me what to do. 
And by the way, this is someone who, who holds and leans politically libertarian describing this. But what ends up happening is, is we take that, that government or cultural view as Americans and we take it and then we apply it to what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And what comes from that is we take on some form of spiritual libertarianism where we say, well, I should be able to follow Jesus however I want and do whatever I want and treat people however I want as long as I don't harm them. And I think Paul is going to present us with a different approach and a better approach. And when I say better, I mean both in how we might witness to an unbelieving world around us. But here's the thing. I think if we find ourselves falling in line with what God says to be true in his word, that we'll experience more joy and we'll actually experience true freedom in following our creator and making much of him. And what Paul is going to share with us is that Christians should be willing to lay down our rights and preferences for the sake of our Christian brothers and sisters and for non-Christians around us. And so what we'll see in chapter 9 this morning is that Paul's going to be our primary example, but then I'm going to take us to the end, at the end and show us that Jesus is actually our ultimate example of what Paul is talking about in chapter 9. So look at the first two verses of chapter 9. Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Right, so, so Paul's primary argument in chapter 9 is going to be this. My entire ministry is one of sacrifice and accommodation to others so that I might have the opportunity to share Jesus with them and love on them. That's Paul's entire strategy for ministry. So I'm going to sacrifice and accommodate wherever I can so as to make much of Jesus. And we're going to see part one of that this week and part two of that next week in the second half of chapter nine. But he starts off by asking basically four rhetorical questions to the, Corinth, to the, to the people of Corinth. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus myself? Did God not use me in your life? He's basically saying, hey, if anyone has a right to exercise their freedoms, specifically to eat the idol meat and to demand certain things, it would be me, Paul, the pastor, the church planner, the apostle. I am free to do all these things because I'm an apostle. I've seen the resurrected Jesus. I'm your spiritual father. Most of you wouldn't have any idea who Jesus is if, if I hadn't rolled into Corinth and planted this church. And yet, I abstain from eating this meat for the sake of our weaker brothers and sisters inside of this church. Now, what ends up happening is he has to then begin to defend his spiritual credentials to the church because what was happening was, is because Paul was with, with, with abstaining from eating the meat and those that had become puffed up with knowledge had become so puffed up with with what they believed to be true and about their freedoms to eat this meat, what they were saying was, is, 
well, hey, you can't trust Paul and his teaching on this matter. He's not a real apostle. He's kind of like a, 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 a partial uh, apostle. So don't fully believe in, in what he's saying. Don't fully trust what he's saying to you. And so when you get to verse 3 of chapter 9, the context of verse three, uh, verse 2 and verse 3 makes it clear that they were so convinced of their right to eat this idol meat and Paul's refusal and their displeasure with him and his take on this is like, all right, our goal is to completely discredit Paul and his ministry. The best way to stop Paul's teaching on surrendering our rights and our freedoms is to discredit him. If any of you guys are familiar with um, debating or philosophy, this is called an ad hominem attack. It is very, very, very common today. How many of you guys spend any time on social media? They should call it ad hominem media because that's all it is. Anytime you see in there, it's like, it, they, anytime you see a discussion or anything going on there, the moment someone starts bringing up data or facts or truth, the best way to get rid of that stuff is to attack the character of the person presenting the data. And so that's their goal. And they're saying, okay, well, we know Paul's teaching on these various things. Let's just attack his character. And this happens everywhere around us, guys. And the church has been so pulled into this over the last couple decades that I, I can't even begin to describe it all, right? But you guys are familiar with it, right? Our arguments over theological positions. What, what mode of baptism? What's the right way? Working our way through that. Arguments over social justice issues and, and how, how we respond to those. Arguments over politics. And in the last two years, arguing over whether wearing a mask is the right thing to do or, or taking a vaccine or whatever else. And again, this is not me pushing a particular side. I'm saying that both sides do this as they argue with one another, trying to tear one another down. And in verse 13, Paul says, hey, for me, I'm not here to tear down. I'm here to build up. I'm here to love well. I'm here to encourage. I'm here to make much of Jesus. How might we do this together? And so Paul, because he's been attacked, is going to defend his credentials as an apostle so that he might continue to encourage them in his greater point which is laying down our rights will actually bring us closer to Christ and make much of him. Right, look, at what, look at what he says. He says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the other brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So basically, right, Paul's last point was, is he had a right to all these things. And one of the things he did while he was in Corinth is he worked as a tent maker. And, as he, and when he was working as a tent maker, he did that so that the church could serve the poor and the widows and the orphans in the city of Corinth, and he didn't take a salary from them. Most of the other apostles, anytime they planted a church or they worked with the church for any period of time, they took a salary from that church. And Paul's basically saying, hey, when Barnabas and I showed up to plant this church, we didn't take a salary from you. But that wasn't because we didn't have a right to take that salary. It was because we chose to lay down that right in order to serve you and better serve the city of Corinth. 
Now, Paul's detractors said, hey, Paul knows he's not a real apostle, and that's why he didn't ask for a salary. See, he's proving to you that you can't trust him or his teaching because he didn't take a salary while he was in Corinth. And Paul's like, uh-uh, no, hold on. Pause for a second. Let's have a discussion about this, right? And he says to them, I didn't take this salary, but just so you know, I could have, and here's my proof that I could have been able to. And he's going to make a common sense argument, and he's going to make a biblical argument for the case of his right to take a salary, right? For the, from the common sense perspective, he says, look, soldiers don't serve in an army at their own expense. The government pays for their salary and feeds them while they're away at war defending their people. He says, if you look at a farmer, a farmer eats their own produce. They don't grow and get rid of everything and then starve themselves. And those that tend to flocks or shepherds, they tend to drink the milk and eat from their own flock to be able to provide for themselves and eat for their family. He's basically saying people have a right to make a living from their work. That's a common sense argument. Therefore, if Barnabas and I are working full-time in the church, discipling you guys, pointing you to Jesus, teaching you truths about God and things you didn't know, we have a right to have received the salary from you. The same way a soldier would, the same way a farmer would, the same way uh, a shepherd would, we have that right among you. Paul works as a church planner and a pastor and surrendered that right for the sake of the gospel not because he didn't deserve it. Now he says, not only is this a common sense argument that anybody that looks out and looks out on vocation and looks out on work and says, hey, it is right for me to receive a wage for the work that I'm doing so I might be able to eat and provide for my family. He says, it's also biblical. Right? If you look at verse 8, look at what he says. Do I say these things on human authority or does the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? And Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4 here. And, and basically the way that this worked is when the harvest would be reaped by the Israelites, they'd bring uh, the, the grain and the wheat in and they would lay it on the ground and kind of like in a circular pattern. And they had these kind of devices and they called this room kind of the threshing floor. And what they would do is they would lay the wheat down because to be able to use the grain to be able to make bread, you had to trample out the wheat or the grain to be able to use it to bake bread. And what they would do is they would often take an ox and they would attach to it either a weighted board or they would just allow the oxen to walk around in a circle and trample out the wheat. Now, God in his word told Israel you are not to muzzle the ox while it does this work for you. You are to allow that animal to be able to glean and eat the food from the work by which it is doing. So basically, God was like, hey, I know the propensity of human beings is to be selfish and self-centered and evil. And I know that the wickedness of man knows no bounds to the point that they would muzzle an animal and starve it to get a little more grain from their harvest. Israel, you are not to be that way. As my people, as, as people that claim to be followers of Yahweh, the God of the heavens and the earth, you are to be different. Do not muzzle the ox, but allow it to eat the food. So Paul goes on to say then in verses 10 through 12, 
if God cares about that ox, how much more so does he care about his people? How much more does he care about human beings? Therefore, how much more does, do Paul and Barnabas have the right to claim a salary from the church at Corinth to be able to eat and provide? Now, he's going to share one last thing in verse 13. Not only did God declare it in his law that it was supposed to be this way, but he actually established the Levitical priesthood to operate this way as well. Look at verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? The priests ate from the temple sacrifices that were brought in to be given to God. It was their portion. It was God's way of providing for them because when the nation of Israel went into the land of Canaan and overtook the promised land, the, the Levitical priesthood was not given a portion amongst the land the way that the other tribes of Israel were. And what God did is he said, actually, the way I'm going to provide for the tribe of Levi is I'm going to provide from the other 11 tribes of Israel, and I'm going to provide through the temple service for them. That this is the way I'm going to provide for Levi and his family. And Paul is saying, when you go then to verse 14, it's the same for pastors and planters. Now, I am well compensated here. This is not me making some plea to, to give more money so that I can be taken care of. But what we're seeing is that Paul is making an argument and saying, I have every right to receive a salary from you guys, Corinth but I didn't take one. And I didn't take one because I'm not an apostle. I didn't take one because I don't know what I'm talking about. I didn't uh, take one because my conscience was heavy and I wasn't sure about the idle meat situation. No, I didn't take one because I loved you and I wanted to serve you in Christ. For the sake of the gospel, Paul is convinced that the best way for him to witness to the good news of what Jesus had done was not to participate in holding these rights and freedoms as being the most important thing he could do. And if you read verse 18, you see this beautiful realization of what Paul comes to as he lays down these rights. Look at that with me. Starting in verse 15, he says, But I made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. A right, pretty big statement. I would rather die than take a salary, to take this opportunity for me to witness of what I know to be true about God. And look at what he says. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. And then look at what he says in verse 18. He's basically saying this. God has called me to preach the gospel, and so I do that out of obedience, but I do it free of charge because I want to give. 
He's like, if I just preach the gospel and receive a salary, I'm just doing what I'm called to do. But if I preach the gospel and make disciples and plant churches and lead people to Christ and don't take a salary, then I receive a reward. And look what he says. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. He's basically saying this. The reward I'm going to receive in heaven of seeing men and women who spend eternity with their creator is far greater than anything I could ever be given on this earth. To, to sit at the feet of Jesus for eternity, singing praises to the goodness of what he's done for us, is far greater than exercising my rights and freedoms that I have here on this earth. To make much of God and what he's done for us in Christ is our true joy. And so here's the question we then need to turn inward on ourselves as we read about what Paul is saying here in chapter 9. Is there disunity among us? And not just, I mean, here locally in our own church body, but is there disunity in the church? Is there disunity in our city? Is there disunity in our workplace? Is there disunity in any culture or place that God may have us to be? And especially amongst believers, is there disunity amongst faithful Jesus-loving brothers and sisters in Christ. Guys, the last two years now, because we're almost there, have been hard, amen? No matter what side of the arguments you land on, it's been hard for everybody. And here's something that, that I think has been so heartbreaking to me. I'm not surprised at all that Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians and Green Party, and I don't know how many other parties there are at this point, I'm not surprised when they argue and yell and scream at one another. But it's been really heartbreaking to see professing brothers and sisters speak to one another the way that we have in the last two years. And guys, here's the thing. I've, I've been guilty about it at times too. And I'm ashamed when I think about it. Because Paul says to us, there's a better way. There's a more liberating approach to following him. That there's true freedom in laying down our freedoms for the cause of Jesus Christ. And so how do we respond to this? How, how can we practically, individually, and then collectively respond to this? I think we can do this in a couple of ways. And I think we followed the pattern of Paul. Right, we can ask ourselves the question, what are my rights and freedoms in any given situation? What, what are they? Mask or no mask, vaccine or no vaccine, vote or no vote. Work or not work, give or not give. What, what is my freedom or my right dictate to me in this situation? And then ask yourself this question. How will my exercising of this right or freedom affect those around me? 
Because I'll tell you this, guys, when I start asking that question, my opinion changes really, really quickly. How will exercising this right or freedom affect those around me? And will exercising this right or freedom make much of Jesus in his church or make less of him? And would the better way be to lay down that right for the sake of the gospel and unity in Christ? I have an example of one really beautiful time and early on in our church where, where this was played out. And I was so proud as a young pastor of, of some of the men in our church as this played itself out because it was just a beautiful example of, of following the example of humility that Paul shows here to live this out. We, we very, very early on, we had men's and women's Bible studies in like the first year of our church being in existence here in Gainesville. And the men's study would gather every week, and we probably had, there was probably about 15 of us at that time coming to that group. And then that group got really, really close where people would hang out on the front porch of these guys' house after the Bible study. And a couple of the guys that, that owned the house and lived in the house, they worked here in Gainesville. They were over the age of 21. And so they would go grab a beer or a glass of wine or, or um, you know, a glass of bourbon. And they would sit on the front porch and they would drink together. Right? And this isn't, you know, this isn't a discussion about teetotaling or prohibitionism or, or whatever else. Right? But here, here, here's what happened. Right? One of the young men that went to the University of Florida that started coming to our Bible study and started coming to that group started feeling really uncomfortable with those guys drinking around him because he grew up in an abusive family with an alcoholic father. And he was a relatively young and new believer, and he was really, really excited and knew these guys, and they were pouring into him. But he felt so uncomfortable being around alcohol because of the negative connotations that all that had created in his life growing up. And so here they were week after week kind of doing this. And finally, that young man right, kind of stepped up and just said something to one of the other guys that lived in the house. He's like, look, I've been leaving earlier the last couple of weeks. And you keep asking me why I'm leaving early and everyone else is hanging here having a good time. And I'm feeling alienated by the group at this point. But I just need to be honest with you. I don't feel comfortable being around you guys drinking. My dad was abusive. He was an alcoholic. It, it, it's just, I, I can't do it. I'm not saying that you guys don't have the right or the freedom to enjoy a beer on your front porch, but I, I just can't be around it. And all three of the guys that lived in that house went and got their beer. They poured it out in front of them and they refused to have it in the house whenever he was around. That guy served faithfully in this church for the four years that he lived in Gainesville. He lives in Boston, Massachusetts now, and is helping a church get started in Boston. He's about to be a new dad. And I believe a large part of his testimony was the faithfulness of those three guys early on in our church who were willing to lay down their rights and freedoms to love him and show Christ to him because discipling that young man and pouring into his life was more important to them than enjoying their freedom to enjoy a beer. Guys, if we will lay down our rights, our freedoms, the gain we receive from that is far greater 
than the enjoyment we get from that writer freedom. We're going to be telling that story for eternity because of God's faithfulness and testimony in that. We're going to be rejoicing over what God's done in that young man's life for eternity because those men chose to lay down their rights and their freedoms to serve him and love him well. And when we do that, we make Jesus look magnificent. And he is worthy. And so you may be sitting there and saying, okay, well, yeah, sure, Paul did this. And cool for those three guys that you're talking about in their house in the early days of Alathea Church, Pastor Kevin. But how do I know this is actually our calling? How do I know that this is what, what God wants from us? And I would just simply say this. This is not just Paul's example. It's Jesus' example. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. That's where we're going to finish this morning. And I just want to read to you the example of our king. Of what our king did for us. Starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. And what, what, Paul, what Paul is talking about there as he's writing to the church at Philippi is he's referring to humility and sacrifice and serving others. So he says, have humility and sacrifice and serving others in, in your mindset, which is yours in who? Christ Jesus. Right? Because you are in Christ, you can serve and love him in this way. And then look what he says. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Guys, Jesus one-third of the Trinity, God's own Son, being in the form of God, did not count equality with Him, something to be held onto, but emptied Himself, laid down His rights, laid down His freedoms, laid down His prerogatives. Jesus, who had the privileges that are rightly His as King and Creator of the universe, gave those up to become an ordinary Jewish man who went to the cross to die in your place for your sins so that you might be accepted and adopted and loved by the God and creator of the universe. If that's not laying down rights and freedoms, if that's not the example that we are called to follow, I don't know what we're doing here. That is what Christ has done for us. And Jesus calls out to us and Paul cries out to us and he says, I have bought you. You are mine. You are my child. Nothing you can do, as Paul says, can separate you from the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Not powers, not principalities, not evil. Nothing in this life can separate you from God's love. And because you are loved and a child of God, you can empty yourself as well for his glory.
we can lay down our rights for him. Church, let's be known for that. Let's not be known as the church that argues and fights and has really good debates. Let's be known as the people of God that are so gripped by the beauty of what Christ did that will lay down everything for him. If we do that, not even the gates of hell will prevail against the gospel. Nothing can stop Christ and his church.